The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. President Donald Trump has been impeached again, making him the only president in history to be impeached two times. And in fact, uh, this has been a presidency rife with firsts, but they're all pretty bad. And we're going to talk about that uh, in a subsequent segment. But uh, yes, Donald Trump becoming the first president to be impeached twice. The House this time voting on just a single charge citing Trump's role in in inciting that mob that violently went to the Capitol on January 6th. And Donald Trump now will face a Senate trial that could disqualify him from future office, although that Senate trial, by every indication, isn't going to happen until Joe Biden assumes the presidency. Ten Republicans joined Democrats in the House of Representatives in voting yesterday for the impeachment of Donald Trump. This was now a capital much more uh, militarized, much more fortified by law enforcement and military Uh, as a result of what took place on January 6th. Let's go to the moment that it happened. Nancy Pelosi announcing the results for the second time during Donald Trump's presidency that indeed the president has been impeached. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. So going forward, when we say the Trump impeachment, we are going to need to clarify which of the two Trump impeachments we are referring to and notably different this time versus the House vote about a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago in impeaching Donald Trump the first time, 10 Republicans joining the Democrats, uh, Congressman Katko, Liz Cheney, Kinzinger, Upton, Herrera, Butler, Newhouse, Mayor, Gonzalez, Rice and Valadao joining the uh, Democratic Party. I don't think that these Republicans are particularly valiant or brave, although we will talk on the bonus show today about how Liz Cheney is facing calls to resign because she voted for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Can you imagine resign because you did the thing that is your responsibility and duty to do as a member of the House of Representatives. Very backwards, very backwards calls for resignation. We are hearing uh, from Republicans, and this is going to be yet another stain on Donald Trump's legacy only one week before leaving office to the day. And um, we are I mean, listen, this this is we talk. We've talked a lot over the last four years as we've fallen further and further down in terms of global respectability and as the shame has grown and the humiliation has grown, we've talked about what will it take to get back to where we were. And for many of us, where we were wasn't that great. I mean, okay, diplomatically, the United States was more respected around the world under Barack Obama and previous presidencies. But we still were falling behind in dealing with climate. We still weren't getting health care to everybody, uh, even as one of the richest countries in the world. We still had hunger. We still had unemployment. You know, it, we, we were far better off than we are now. 
far more respected, but we still had serious problems to solve. And um, we cannot. It is unreasonable to expect that after this level of global shame and domestic shame, just because the Trumpists don't feel ashamed doesn't mean it's not significant shame. It took four years for this to culminate in Donald Trump's second impeachment and this riotous mob that he incited. It's going to take more than six months to make significant headway in in getting out of it. And hopefully our historical allies uh, will will forgive us. That's really the question. And uh, there is going to be a lot of work digging out from this. Um, even uh, many Republicans in House speeches yesterday in the anticipation of this vote, uh, including uh, Representative Kevin McCarthy conceding that, yes, Donald Trump was to blame for what happened at the Capitol last week. Um, but many continuing to insist that despite that, it is not impeachable. So uh, we are all, of course, disappointed that there are unlikely to be greater consequences for Donald Trump. If things go incredibly well and the Senate votes to convict when they likely um, in February, March, April, we don't know, convene for the uh, impeachment trial of Trump. Uh, if they were to convict, it is uh, a, a possibility that Trump will face the consequence of not being able to run again. But we all wish there had been more consequences. And I, I think maybe the biggest takeaway is were it not for you getting out and voting in 2018 to take that majority away in the House of Representatives from Republicans, were it not for you voting in 2020? Uh, to remove Donald Trump and to give Democrats a Senate majority, we wouldn't even be seeing a lot of what we've seen. The first impeachment wouldn't have happened were it not for the 2018 vote. The second impeachment, I mean, we'd be dealing with a different situation. Let's put it that way. Were it not for taking the White House and the Senate uh, in, in November and in the runoff elections in Georgia in January. So there are successes here. Uh, but we all wish that there had been more consequences and earlier on for what has been arguably the most atrocious presidency in modern political history. Donald Trump did deliver what I believe we can safely call his final ad address as president of the United States yesterday. It's basically an unrecognizable person. It, 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 this is not a Trump we have ever seen before. Uh, it's not like Trump uh, has been this person we saw yesterday for the last four years, but was pretending to be somebody else. I believe that the Trump we saw yesterday is a fake Trump. It is a desperate Trump and Trump's speech yesterday is a desperate plea for mercy. Trump is isolated, furious, abandoned by many Republicans, banned from a number of social media accounts. And he sat in the Oval Office yesterday and recorded what he hopes is a speech that will save him, that will take the pressure off in terms of a possible impeachment conviction in the Senate. He is attempting to dial down the possibility of future investigations into his endless wrongdoing. Let's take a look at it. My fellow Americans, I want to speak to you tonight about the troubling events of the past week. As I have said, the incursion of the U.S. Capitol struck at the very heart of our republic. It angered and appalled millions of Americans across the political spectrum. I want to be very clear. I unequivocally condemn the violence that we saw last week. Violence and vandalism have absolutely no place in our country and no place in our movement. 
Making America great again has always been about defending the rule of law. So a unifying and empathetic Trump, right? Give me a break, guys. No one who has been paying attention for the last really now five plus years is falling for this. This is Trump having a speech on a prompter shoved in front of him and being told this is what you need to say to maybe save yourself from some of what is unlike what is likely to be coming. And of course, Trump now the unifier around the riots he caused through his two months of election lies and a speech saying, let's go to the Capitol right now. Now, of course, the MAGA movement has never been about defending the rule of law. They say that. But even before being a a president, Trump would tell his supporters that if they are rough with protesters at his rallies and they get arrested and charged, he'll pay their legal fees. Now, as we'll find out on the bonus show today, Trump doesn't pay anybody's legal fees. He's not even paying his own. But we'll get to that later. Let's get to more of yesterday's bizarre statement from Trump. Mob violence goes against everything I believe in and everything our movement stands for. No true supporter of mine could ever endorse political violence. No true supporter of mine could ever disrespect law enforcement or our great American flag. No true supporter of mine could ever threaten or harass their fellow Americans. If you do any of these things, you are not supporting our movement. You are attacking it, and you are attacking our country. We cannot tolerate it. Tragically, over the course of the past year, made so difficult because of COVID-19. Trump caused the mob violence. His supporters led a mob. It's sort of a no true Scotsman situation. If anyone rioted, then by definition, they couldn't have been my supporters. Well, sir, they had Trump hats and Trump shirts and Trump flags when they broke in. And when they gave interviews, they said they were for Trump. And when they posted to social media, they said they were for Trump. Yeah, but they weren't true supporters of mine. Indefeasible, right? It's a closed loop. You can't uh, you can't break it, as we talked about last week. Trump also, by the way, mentioned covid-19 there. Now, Trump, of course, has disastrously mishandled the virus. So everything about this speech is just fantasy world Looney Tunes. Here's another uniting message from this new Trump. Whether you are on the right or on the left, a Democrat or a Republican, there is never a justification for violence. No excuses, no exceptions. America is a nation of laws. Those who engaged in the attacks last week will be brought to justice. Now I am asking everyone who has ever believed in our agenda to be thinking of ways to ease tensions, calm tempers and help to promote peace in our country. Now, some people might hear Trump say everyone will be brought to justice and they'll react by saying, wow, Trump's doing the right thing. He's being tough on the rioters. That really takes takes some uh, strength. Trump never cared about the rioters. Here's what people have to understand when they were rioting. Trump was pleased initially. We know he was liking it and he liked how it delayed the electoral vote count. He never cared about the rioters as people. He never cared about the rioters as his voters or supporters. It just was useful to his political goals. Then Trump noticed that the rioters looked low class. That's these are the reports. We got multiple reports about that. 
Trump still didn't care about them as people. He just cared about how they made him look and low class rioters made Trump look bad. Remember, Trump has spent his entire life trying to stay away from people like most of his supporters at his golf clubs and at his high rise apartments. And then the rioters now were getting arrested and it led to Trump's impeachment. So Trump denounces them and says they're not my true supporters and they're going to be persecuted, uh, prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. He's not abandoning anyone insofar as he was never actually with them. They were always merely political tools. And now he's using this to try to get points for lowering the temperature. But it's much too late to matter. Let's watch a little bit more. Donald Trump saying don't do any more riots, please. There has been reporting that additional demonstrations are being planned in the coming days both here in Washington and across the country. I have been briefed by the U.S. Secret Service on the potential threats. Every American deserves to have their voice heard in a respectful and peaceful way. That is your First Amendment right. But I cannot emphasize that there must be no violence, no law-breaking, and no vandalism of any kind. Everyone must follow our laws and obey the instructions of law enforcement. I have directed federal agencies to use all necessary resources to maintain order. In Washington, D.C., we are bringing in thousands of National Guard members to secure the city and ensure that a transition can occur safely and without incident. So there it is. Trump sending a message. No more riots. Now, Trump can't get out of this without doing some of his typical routines. So here Trump goes after social media platforms for banning him as assaults on free speech. I also want to say a few words about the unprecedented assault on free speech we have seen in recent days. These are tense and difficult times. The efforts to censor, cancel, and blacklist our fellow citizens are wrong, and they are dangerous. What is needed now is for us to listen to one another, not to silence one another. All of us can choose by our actions to rise above the rancor, and find common ground and shared purpose. We must focus on advancing the interests of the whole nation, delivering the miracle vaccines, defeating the pandemic, rebuilding the economy, protecting our national security, and upholding the rule of law. Now, of course, the social media stuff is not a free speech issue. I'm not going to get into, into that again. We've gone over that. Ad nauseum. Uh, and of course, this Donald Trump, we've never seen this Trump because he doesn't exist. This isn't real Trump. The real guy is the guy he has plainly been in public, which matches the guy he's plainly been in private. That's the real Trump. The five minute Trump we saw yesterday is just a pathetic, desperate attempt to save himself and get some mercy so that Republicans, when the impeachment trial starts, can say, listen, Trump lowered the temperature. He dialed it down. We're not going to vote to convict. That's the goal. And one more thing. If this would have been Trump all along, it would have been fake, but he would have gotten reelected. If with the virus, Trump had done that and said, this is a tough time. Let's listen to the doctors. No mass anti mask protests. Just listen to the doctors. 
way fewer people would have died and Trump would have sailed to reelection. There would have been no riot and Trump would be getting another four years. Too little, too late from fake Trump. Let me know your reaction. I'm on Twitter at D Pacman. The David Pacman Show at DavidPacman.com. I want to take a second to tell you about one of our sponsors, SNH Masks. SNH Masks has everything you need when it comes to face masks and other protective gear for COVID-19. And they're giving my audience 20% off. SNH Masks is the company that I've personally been going to for face masks. I love and trust the products they sell. And that's actually why I reached out to them about being a sponsor. I've tried tons of different face masks this year, like many of you, and I still have not found a mask that is more comfortable or easier to breathe in than the washable cotton masks that they sell. It's made of a silky, lightweight cloth that feels great on the skin, has a convenient adjustable strap. They also have disposable cloth masks, which are really comfortable, as well as all of the other gear like face shields, alcohol wipes, no touch infrared thermometers. And all of their prices are very reasonable. I also love SNH masks because they've donated over 60,000 masks to healthcare institutions. They're an excellent company. Shipping is just five bucks and shipping is free on orders over one hundred and fifty dollars. You can get there by going to davidpackmancom slash mask. The link is in the podcast notes and you can save 20 percent on everything in their store when you use coupon code David. One of our sponsors is Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer owned company shipping super quality CBD directly from their farm to your door. They cut out the middleman, which saves you money and gets you the freshest possible product, which includes tinctures, flour, gummies, skin topicals, even CBD coffee, which I've really enjoyed. The whole team loves Sunset Lake CBD, especially their CBD oil and the gummies. We always say send us more. Every time we run out, CBD is reported as being useful for relieving stress, pain, inflammation. Some people use it before bed to help with sleep. And Sunset Lake is where you want to get your CBD because they pay employees a living wage. Their farm is sustainable. And of course, because they support progressive shows like ours, they're giving David Pakman show listeners 20 percent off when you go to davidpackmancom slash CBD and use the coupon code Pacman. That's coupon code P-A-K-M-A-N. You can find the URL in the podcast notes. The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Our program is mostly made possible by folks like you who grab a membership at joinpacman.com. Uh, you can use the coupon code if you so please. To get a big discount, that coupon code is better 21, all one word, all lowercase. A few interesting posts on the David Pakman show subreddit. I, I invite you to join us there. Um, respectful political discussion with just 27,000 of our closest friends in the audience. You can go to davidpackmancom slash reddit. Um, a very interesting post about what if what happened on January 6th had happened when Barack Obama had been president and what if it was 2012 and 
Obama had lost to Mitt Romney, but insisted he actually won and spent months promoting on Twitter and Facebook that he won and that Mitt Romney had stolen the election. And then on the day when the Electoral College votes were being counted, Barack Obama went to a rally and told Antifa and Black Lives Matter people, let's go to the Capitol. And then they did and they broke into the Capitol and a police officer died. Do you think that the reactions would have been the same from Republicans? What do you think we would be seeing on Fox News? What do you think we would be seeing uh, from the standpoint of of uh, the Republican Party on uh, the floors of the House and the Senate? Give me a break, guys. You need only imagine that scenario to see the level of hypocrisy uh, and dishonesty and immorality that we are seeing from Republicans today. Very, very good post. Also, an interesting question from a user who goes by the name Fred Osaurus on our subreddit, who says, will Trump divulge state secrets when he's out of office? I'm worried of the national security risk that Trump will represent when out of office, because even if he can be removed from the office, he surely has state secrets in his head that obviously can't be removed. I'm surprised he hasn't spilled already. But I'm wondering if any of you think he will use his knowledge of state secrets as a bargaining chip with his cronies or who knows, I wouldn't be surprised if the Russians approach him undercover or not and try to get him to divulge some of the things that would be useful to them. I I don't actually think so. And there's a couple things. Number one, and uh, this was actually mentioned in the comments. Trump hasn't been reading his uh, presidential daily briefings for a long time. He hasn't even been receiving them orally for a long time. So. Trump knows way fewer state secrets than most presidents because he's not been paying attention for a very long time and he doesn't really care. Number two, I don't actually think Trump would would do something like selling state secrets for cash or anything like that. I I don't think that he would be morally against it. I just don't think that it would end up being put together. But I do think it's quite plausible that in order to brag, Trump will say things to people he's not supposed to be saying things to. Um, often with Trump, much of his behavior comes out of incompetence or narcissism rather than out of malice, although there's no shortage of malice uh, for for sure. But let me know what you think about that and join the discussion at davidpackmancom slash Reddit. You know, one of the things I was thinking about yesterday as we saw the second impeachment of Donald Trump is that for a guy who has been focused on being a winner, winning, winning, winning and wanting to be the alpha and wanting to be the big dog and wanting to be respected and all of this stuff, there's really been no bigger loser than Donald Trump from the standpoint of American presidents and what he's done to his party and what he's done to the country. Donald Trump, as we mentioned earlier, has now been impeached twice. No president has ever been impeached twice. Donald Trump lost the popular vote twice, something no president has done in more than 100 years. It has happened before, but it's been more than 100 years. Donald Trump's presidency oversaw the loss of the House of Representatives for Republicans in 2018, lost the House. Trump's mishandling of the virus has been not only historically disastrous, but it combined with his wackiness led Republicans to lose the Senate in 2020. And it led to Trump losing the presidential race and making himself a one term president. Trump has been widely banned from social media for completely flouting the rules of those social media platforms. And in so doing all of this, Donald Trump has also damaged his own businesses, possibly irreparably losing contracts with the city of New York, 
many of his businesses decimated, as we've discussed, and will lead to investigations of Trump's businesses for possible financial wrongdoing. He has destroyed the reputations of his children, his son in law and so many of the people around him, possibly irreparably. And all of that talk that Trump always says, you know, no one's ever seen anything like this, like nobody's ever seen before. We've gotten used to that phrase. He's right. It's true. Trump is right about that. But unfortunately, the superlatives and unprecedented elements of this presidency are all bad. And unfortunately, a lot of the awakening that we're seeing didn't happen sooner. A lot of the damage was done by the time this partial awakening happened. But I think it's also important for us to understand that most Trumpists have not abandoned Trump. There's some good new polling data that came out. I believe it was yesterday, maybe this morning. I saw it this morning, which shows that although 10 Republican members of the House did vote to impeach Donald Trump, although some senators are saying Trump should go uh, Pat Toomey, for example, we've heard critical comments from Mitt Romney. And some Republican voters have abandoned Trump. By and large, Trump continues to be uh, supported by the Republican electorate, and he continues to be uh, seen as arguably the most dominant and important force in the Republican Party. So the idea that on uh, on Wednesday at noon, Trump becomes irrelevant to American politics or to the Republican Party. So far, it doesn't appear to be that way. Yes, members of the House and Senate of the Republican Party will, as I have told you, start to distance. They will go back to saying we've got to focus on debt and deficit and religious freedom and lowering taxes and cutting regulations and all of this stuff. And they'll sort of pretend Trump never happened or certainly that they weren't bigly supportive of it. Uh, but for now, the majority of the Republican electorate is sticking with him, and it's unclear whether there are going to be consequences and accountability for everything Donald Trump has done. Incredibly, we know that Trump still thinks he did a great job. He has weaponized his narcissism, and that's exactly why he still thinks he did a great job. He thinks none of this stuff is his fault. He believes he's the best. When Trump says I'm the best president, I've done more than anybody else. He clearly believes it, and it shouldn't be ignored that despite all of the losing, Trump has gotten things done permanently and all of them are bad. The judges, the court appointments, the um, uh, uh, that's irreversible. They Trump will leave. They will stay continuing to damage the country. And much of that is thanks to Mitch McConnell and many of the very Republicans that are now distancing. They put in Trump's just uh, judges and justices and uh, the time lost with climate and the environment. There is no way to get that back. That's irreversible. We can now try to do even more to make up for it. But every lost day, we never get back. But Trump's greatest act or maybe better said, his strongest action to make America greater, greater is only six days away, which is going to be Donald Trump leaving office, arguably as the biggest loser to ever be the president of the United States. We'll have more on this on our Instagram page at David Pakman Show. And you can also find me on Instagram at David.Pakman. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. So it's a new year. And for many people, that means new goals around getting fit or losing weight. And if part of that for you involves a low carb or ketogenic diet, then I have something you will want to check out. It's called So Ketolicious, and they're giving you 20% off. 
So Ketolicious has perfected ketogenic crusts for baking your favorite foods. They make a delicious keto dessert crust, which comes in a chocolate and vanilla flavor. And it's perfect for making things like pies. They also have a premium keto pizza crust, which I've been using at home to make pizzas, and it's great. Uh, it is great to go right out of the freezer. And when you cook it, it doesn't fall apart like a lot of other low carb crusts do. It's high fat, which is perfect for keto, grain free, gluten free, no soy or additives or preservatives or fillers. But most importantly, they just taste great. I can tell you firsthand. Just go to davidpackmancom slash pizza. The link is in the podcast notes and they'll give you 20 percent off your entire order when you use the coupon code Pacman. One of our sponsors is Hydrant, which is a delicious fruit drink powder that you mix into water for rehydration. And they're giving you 25 percent off your first order. It's made with four key electrolytes that the body needs, powerfully supporting your hydration. Hydrant tastes great. It's made with real fruit juice. It's been a great part of my daily routine for a while now. Keeping myself hydrated puts me in a better mood. The body needs hydration for basic energy and focus, and hydrant is the perfect way to rehydrate, especially because it's cost effective and lower in sugar compared to all of those popular sports drinks that are out there. You really have to try it for yourself to see what I mean. It tastes great. They also have a variety called hydrant immunity packed with vitamins A, B, C and D, which is also very much worth trying. Hydrant has a full refund guarantee if you're not satisfied and you'll get 25 percent off your first order when you go to drinkhydrant.com slash Pacman or enter the code Pacman at checkout. That's drink H Y D R A N T dot com slash P A K M A N coupon code Pacman. I've put the link in the podcast notes. Welcome back to the David Pakman show. It's great to uh, welcome back today. Peter Joseph, who's the founder of the zeitgeist movement and director and writer of the film Inter Reflections, uh, of course, based on his book. Uh, Peter, it's so great to have you back on. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me. Hope you're doing well. So I, I'm curious. Um, so much has happened over the last four years and in particular over the last couple of weeks, really since the, the November election with um, you know, literally dozens and dozens of events that previously we, we would imagine to be extraordinarily unlikely in the United States. I'm curious on a few different levels. Number one, based on your the analysis and the perspective that you've talked about on our program before that you have about uh, the way the United States is organized. Are the events of the last few weeks that that unlikely or is it exactly the type of thing that your perspective would would suggest is inevitable in some sense? Well, the specifics are hard to pinpoint, but this kind of um, right wing insurrection coming from what I feel is many, many generations of lower class oppression mm. isn't necessarily unpredictable. You know, the, the there's this kind of a short term picture and a long term picture, as with anything, when it comes to to uh, the human condition in, in terms of causality and human behavior. So on one side, if you look at the events of January 6th, you have this rather sparse insurrection, so to speak, kind of a satire of a coup, if you will, if you really kind of look at it uh, when they stormed the Capitol. 
And then you relate that clearly to a figurehead that has a deep cult of personality and has been promoting things in his self-interest with no responsibility. And people have flocked to him and they believed him. And this is where we end up. So that's one perspective. I don't think you can just blame, for example, Donald Trump explicitly. Donald Trump came from somewhere. He's a right. manifestation of something. I mean, if you look at his character in and of himself, he represents really a kind of kind of <laughs> extreme caricature of what capitalist society is, right? It's really about people. I mean, he's literally groomed into this since his father's time. And he knows how to angle. He's a professional angler. And there's a there's a line there with morality where someone goes from being a good businessman to being effectively a criminal. And I think there's debate as to how gray that area is when you're dealing with exploitation and gaming, because that's what our society is. We, we're gaming. That's what people do. That's is it, the only theory that really supports the kind of behavior that our economy does is game theory, as people have modeled in the past in terms of who will be successful and who will not. So there's that. So you have that kind of character that comes from society. And then on the other side, you have people, and I, again, I, it's, it's sad because people become so upset when they look at these images and they see the, they see the effectively a kind of domestic terrorist heir to this right-wing insurgency and obsessed with conspiracies. They don't believe anything. It's easy to be upset with those people, but they, have, they came from somewhere. There's a reason why they have evolved to where they've become. And it's not just Donald Trump, as I said before. I think this society in America, due to socioeconomic inequality, something that we spoke about years ago in my book, The New Human Rights Movement, it's the core focus of that book. Socioeconomic inequality is one of the largest drivers of destabilization than anything. It is, a, it is the ultimate uh, precondition, so to speak, sociologically, that forces people into a kind of antagonism, even in a wealthy society such as the United States. The haves and the have-nots have become so severe throughout the years. And if people don't understand why, they don't understand the mechanics, they understand the history, they start to feel they start to feel like they're left behind. So as bizarre as it is that you have a white culture in America that now feels they're oppressed, you know, given the true history of America, where obviously the white man particularly is far from the most oppressed, but this is manifest from this, what I believe, class inequality. And I think there's a great deal of sociological research epidemiological study that supports that. So for me, the solution to all of this is create more economic equality, ultimately. That's really the most critical thing society can do at this point to help it stop the instability that I think is only going to keep growing on many different levels. From the standpoint of, um, well, let, let, I'll frame this up in a slightly different way and get, get your thoughts on it. Um, whenever we we've seen over the last four years, the next high bar of crazy reached, Sometimes there will be this feeling of, OK, this is now over the line and nobody is going to be OK with this. And then we hear, oh, actually, it, there's people who are OK with it. And then you see the social media posts and then you see the short memory uh, uh, the, that that many have for, for these sorts of things. And you see the way that the, the media apparatus sort of creates an environment where no matter what takes place, someone is there yet that you can point to that will actually say this is actually OK or defended in some way. And right. we could if we say what was the origin of this, we could come up with a lot of different starting points. But in terms of the political media landscape, I often think back to the Reagan welfare queen meme of this imaginary woman who's having all these kids and getting rich off of it and has a Cadillac. And like once you believe that, then you go into immigrants are dangerous and then you go into trickle down economics or whatever, right? Like fill in the blanks and then you get to 
Hugo Chavez and Dominion and whatever stole the election, like the, the ultimate caricature that we heard over the last couple of months. Is yeah. that a fair way to talk about the history and that that makes it about a 35 year history? Or would you kind of frame it up in a different way? Well, I think that you're, you're touching upon how two things, how belief systems come to be and belief systems share shared, uh, uh, excuse me, a common architecture. So going back to Reagan Thatcher and the rise of neoliberalism, where Thatcher, I believe her quote was, there is no society. She's all about the individual and this sort of narcissistic, um, uh, righteous self-individualism came forward that clearly has been deeply caustic. And if you believe things like, well, you get what you work for, or you just have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you believe that people have complete free will and it's all up to them, which is that general gesture of all of this, then you're gonna not care very much about people that are actually suffering legitimately because of the very structure of the system that do not have the same advantages that other people do because of the long, long generation of inequality in many facets of that. But uh, yeah, I agree with you, absolutely. It's uh, It's, in the book, I remember writing a whole section on how the kind of right-wing mindset can be created and how, particularly from that standpoint, how this, if you, like for example, if you believe that you get what you work for, then you probably also believe that people that commit crime have absolutely total responsibility. Right. Like forget they're, they're in poverty, forget what their life condition was. So you end up you know, with that, that kind of distorted value system based on narrow individualism. And I think that also is very much part of the society because of the economic system once again. So my causality, as you know, David, is it's really all about what our economy has done to us sociologically and obviously psychologically. And if you have people that are stuck in a system, regardless of the reality of our condition, regardless right. of our potentials for, say, post-scarcity, um, and they're fighting with each other because of the structure, not because we have to, but because of the structure, you're going to have antagonism. You're going to have racism. You're going to have all this group versus group stuff. You see it in microcosms. You see it in macrocosms. I was uh, on another podcast the other day, and I was reminded that in West Virginia, uh, I'm from the South, and I had friends, a friend of a friend from West Virginia, and they were describing to me so, something surreal and how in West Virginia, before NAFTA, the South and the North actually were at odds because of economic strife, if you can believe that. Just like you saw, you see in Italy in the North and the South historically as well, which you know, also generated mob stuff. But it wasn't until NAFTA came along and jobs were taken by people in the global South that people started to hate people from the global South. They started to hate Mexicans. Right. So. You see that antagonism as well. So that's a good corollary. So one of the calls related to this that I get frequently recently when I when I hear from my audience is how do we fix this? And one of the reactions I've had is if we grant that it's taken 30 for to pick the Reagan Thatcher example, 35, 40 years to get into this, it would be unreasonable to expect that in a two, four or six year period of time, we would get out of it. And some of the things that have to be changed are on the one hand, as you're talking about the sort of structure of the financial system and inequality. On the other hand, I when people ask me, how can I convince my aunt that she's wrong? I think that that's a that's what we might call a retail strategy. And we could have that conversation, but it's less relevant to the fact that you probably need a decade or longer of cultural and, econ and economic uh, an educational change to really start changing these things. It would other than by dictatorship. I don't know how you achieve the type of change that has taken place over 40 years in a short period of time. 
I I certainly uh, can sympathize with that sentiment. I would say on, on a certain level, the cultural shifts required, particularly when it comes to something like racism, which I do believe could subside greatly in this country and beyond, it would take more than that because racism has a snowball effect. Mm. You know, racism started as a as a legal construct where in pre excuse me, in the slavery period in early America, and many people don't realize this, the indentured servants that were imprisoned in, in Europe, they were taken over here, they were used for about seven years, then they could be free. That was not the best business investment from the standpoint of the plantation owners. And they started to learn about the African transatlantic slave trade, where the kings in Africa were kidnapping their own people and literally selling them to the Dutch and other, other slave ships. And they were brought over to America as a new investment. But the fact that these people had black skin had no relevance. It wasn't until later. In fact, they even intermarried with indentured servants and had kids. This is, it wasn't this taboo. It wasn't until the legal construct of race was created to fortify racism in and of itself and create an excuse for it ultimately. And then after the Civil War, excuse me, after, after the, um, after the, yeah, after the Civil Wars, but before that, the legal construct was formalized even more so, so the poor black people could be subservient to the poor white people to avoid any kind of upheaval. Dr. Martin Luther King wrote about this uh, eloquently, how the birth of racism came to be, and it's not what people think it is. So now you have families that are racist. They've been racist for generations. They teach racist values to their kids. How do you stop that? Obviously, right. that would take generations. But the economic foundation is still there. And I st strongly believe the stress of this strife and groupism, this group antagonism of our society is to blame. And if you can get rid of that, to whatever degree, it's gonna have an equivalent positive effect on people's bigotry. So to answer your question, I would say to people, obviously you need policy shifts to create more equality. I am again, I'm for demarketization. I have gone through the gamut in my mind and analysis. I'm not a Marxist and I don't subscribe to anything socialist in any kind of traditional sense. I look at it from a, a systems science perspective and what we know uh, in sociology and of course efficiency when it comes to systems. We could go on the tangent of why the system is unsustainable ecologically and so on. Uh, that's a big part of it as well. But in terms of this sociology, <coughs> excuse me, you have to start giving people what they need directly. So you should be in favor of something like UBI as a stepping stone. People should should literally want there to be ultimately free food and free transportation and a free foundation. There should be, we have the resources to do that. So first, I, people need to understand that. And they need to understand that if we have our needs supplied, and I'm not talking about luxuries and excess, we could still have that as a top tier market reality. Right. But you give people what they need so that no one's in poverty anymore then you're going to see these shifts happen. And people need to understand that that is not some kind of inhibition of people's freedom and the propaganda that we have, or people just can't even handle that concept. We can't even talk about universal health care in America because someone will inevitably attribute it to socialism and then think we're going to be in some gulag eventually because we have universal health care. Right. So you see the point. But I, I, I can't answer that question in any kind of explicit way. Um, I have plenty of proposals that I've talked about, and it's obviously education, but you need to have policy shifts. And I will say this, eventually, through ephemeralization, which is this more with less phenomenon, it is to me the, the only real economic wealth that we have. And it's not wealth in the sense of a physical good, it's wealth in the sense of an extremely efficient process. Uh, Jeremy Rifkin refers it to it as zero marginal cost in reference to um, to the current society, where we become so efficient in a given area where we've created technology that can 
can perform actions at such great efficiency, they become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and smaller and smaller and smaller. You know, the big computer, you know, 50 years ago, weighed many tons, took enormous amount of energy, cost millions of dollars. Now your cell phone chip is more powerful. That applied to just about everything in society economically is where I think localization and a, a return to a kind of community-driven high-tech reality where people get off the grid of normal state control I don't mean state in a derogatory way, but it, there's the limitations of using a telecom company, the limitations of having to buy your food from a major corporation. I believe if people act accordingly, and this is the kind of stuff I get into at the end of my, my film, Into Reflections, which begins what will be the second film, and I've commented on this in my book, I don't want to go into too much detail, but it's about getting off the grid of the market system as fast as we can through localization and I'm working on a big lecture in March describing a platform where people can come in and start engaging and feel what it's like to have to have a community resilience and to engage in networks that don't use money. Time That's super, let, let me talk a little bit. So the, uh, this concept of, um, of zero marginal cost is interesting. So, uh, many people are familiar with the economic concept of diminishing marginal cost. So if you imagine building a factory to make one pair of shoes, that's a huge fixed cost investment. And then, of course, as you scale up and you can make more and more shoes more quickly, the additional cost per pair of shoes goes down. But it's still positive. It's still something. It's just not as, as much as, as previously. Right. Talk a little bit about how zero marginal cost is possible and in what areas it would be possible. I think, you know, we see it already when it comes to digital transfer. I mean, music, while it costs money to create, even though substantially less than it did before, uh, can be transferred across the Internet at zero cost. You have the comment, excuse me, of the cost of electricity. That's it. Films. Obviously, anything in the digital realm is the easiest example. You know, it used to be you'd have a big film projector. Then we had a DVD. Now you can have free distribution ultimately. So that's the easiest example. But. Zero marginal cost could apply to, say, transportation systems if they were efficiently created. So you have automated car systems. You have even the early subway systems that we have. If if done correctly, it's still going to cost something, which means ultimately there's going to be some kind of labor and some, some kind of resource investment. But if it's done with the proper efficiency, there's no reason for the public to have to submit to pay for it. And that can be applied to food systems. Look at the efficiency of vertical farm systems as, as has been researched and as I've also talked about in the past. The amount of resources is substantially less. The amount of water is substantially less. And you could easily have vertical farm systems localized where it's so efficient, people don't need to pay for it. It doesn't mean that there isn't labor. So there's always going to be some kind of labor. But think about it. I, I use this example. What if instead of working 40 hours a week, someone only had to work five, right? Would they do that if they could get what they needed without pay? I think they would. I think most people, if they were presented with that, they very much would. Um, I, so, so and with, question, with many of these systems, it also sounds like it's not necessarily about nominal zero marginal costs, but eliminating waste makes it a net zero. Like for the food system is a great example where when you look at how much is left in the fields, because by the time it gets to the grocery store, it would be bruised. And then how much is thrown out by the grocery store, because by the next morning it would be bru like by the waste elimination could make it a net zero. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all kind of subjective. It depends on how you think about labor and energy that goes into something. So obviously everything has a, quote, cost if you put it in the framework of, of labor and energy. But yeah, absolutely, I completely agree. Uh, the the inefficiencies of our current system are so are so extreme because of what we've done. I mean, the average American food plate moves about 2,000 miles before it makes it to your plate. 
which is <laughs> obviously that's not the way uh, an economy would function, especially since there's plenty of resources and land to localize food production. And when you do that, the efficiency increases. The ultimate element of efficiency has to do with networking. Uh, just like on your cell phone, you have all of these things that used to require tons and tons of apps. There's a guy named Peter Diamandis, and he, he did a calculation that yep. the app potential on your phone was worth millions of dollars, say, a number of decades ago, because you don't need a separate audio player or a separate film player. So the networking of things, making things as, as unified as possible is the ultimate post-scarcity um, efficiency mechanism. And that's what we don't do in our society. We have corporations that are all divided. Everyone's competing with each other. You have cell phone companies that are not sharing an open source. They're constantly making new little improvements. And they don't know what they're going to do. They, the amount of waste created is, is staggering because there's no collaborative environment. It's a post-facto collaboration, ultimately, um, which doesn't help anything. So... There's a lot to be said on that. I, my, my, ultimately, my focus these days economically is on post-scarcity. And if we can achieve, and I, I'll just comment on this, by the way. I did see another interview that you did a while back on post-scarcity. And it was, it was a good interview, but I, I noticed that there's a, when people speak about this, they tend to obsess about you know, things like automation and the, the potentials. Mm -hmm. But really, post-scarcity is, is an economic worldview. In our current society, to have deficiency means to be able to make money. For people to be insecure means they're more likely to go out and buy something. Efficiency, sustainability, and conservation are the enemies of this kind of system because the more problems there are, the more money can be made. We have a in China, one of the richest men in the world makes all of his money, multi-billionaire, off of water bottling. So mm. it's not good to have clean water if if you know you want to make a bunch of money. Right. So you have to shift away from that kind of what effectively is artificial scarcity creation that the market system in, just does naturally. It's, this is what its natural incentive is. And if people's mindset gets shifted by that and suddenly people are restricting things, they don't even know it. You have value system disorders that are created. So, and, and that's really where I think the root of the ecological crisis is. And I'll add one more thing to that on this small tangent. Our entire society is pushed by consumption. So, you know, people have to buy things. They have to create demand. That demand inspires jobs. People have the jobs to get money, to get purchasing power, and then the whole cycle continues. If you have a reduction of people needing things for whatever reason, such as durability, sustainability, confidence, uh, you're going to harm the economy as we know it. And that's a very that's a very caustic place to be as a civilization. Yeah, I mean, I think in our next conversation, we should just focus on environment and, and ecological issues. But what you're saying reminds me of uh, within the food system of something Michael Pollan describes really well, which is that just our basic ingredients are very hard to make very profitable because they're just ingredients. You, you can't do much to them. And that's where this idea of, well, let's take the corn and we'll make it inedible in its in its ingredient form, but we can grow a ton of it in an acre and then we can extract it and break it down to its component parts and create food products, which most people don't even really know they want, but will create marketing in order to tell people instead of just buying corn on the cob, here's something made with a corn extract. And that's what you should go and, and buy. I mean, that's the, that's essentially what you're describing across sure. multiple industries. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately. And then you have just the, the psychological disorder simultaneously when people's values are pushed into a social circumstance, excuse me, people's values are being acclimated into a social environment where people get more and more and they want to keep up with the Joneses. Right. I mean, I, I was one of the last person to get a cell phone. I really didn't have the motivation to do so. But over time, everyone had one. Everyone's like, oh, well, why, why can't I call you? Why can't I text you? And suddenly social inclusion kicks in. Right. And that is kind of a virus in our society, uh, so to speak, where 
this need for social inclusion. That's what advertising does. It manipulates our sense of sociality, making us feel like we are missing out on something. And that, of course, is another conversation in and of itself. Yeah. And then when you get this stuff, thanks to hedonic adaptation, you don't really feel any better about now having had it because you're you're moving to the next thing. Uh, Peter Joseph, founder and of the Zeitgeist Movement, director and writer of the film Interreflections. It's always great to talk to you and let's let's do it again. Let's do it. Thank you, David. The David Pakman Show at DavidPakman.com. One of our sponsors is Four Sigmatic, the company best known for their delicious mushroom coffee. Four Sigmatic's mushroom coffee is organic, fair trade, single origin Arabica coffee with both lion's mane and chaga mushrooms. Chaga mushrooms have actually been shown to have potential in supporting the immune system in peer reviewed studies. I've been drinking four sigmatic coffee a lot lately. It actually doesn't taste anything like mushrooms. It just tastes like any delicious coffee, but it's really easy on my stomach. Doesn't give me any jittery feeling or a midday crash. And they have over 20,000 five star reviews. And best of all, if you don't love it, you'll get 100 percent of your money back because they stand behind their product. You've got nothing to lose by giving it a try. Four Sigmatic is giving my audience up to 40% off and free shipping when you go to foursigmatic.com slash Pacman. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C dot com slash P-A-K-M-A-N. The link is also in the podcast notes for this episode. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. One of the things I make a priority on the show is not to perpetuate stigma for things that don't deserve it. We've talked about mental health. We've talked about many things where we should all just be respectful adults, period, and we would be better off. And Blue Chew can increase performance and give you that extra confidence you may be looking for. Bluechew.com, blue like the color blue, is the first chewable with the same FDA-approved ingredient as in Viagra and Cialis. It can be taken day or night, even on a full stomach, since it's chewable. Blue Chew is prescribed online by licensed doctors. You don't have to go to a doctor's office. You don't have to wait in line at a pharmacy. It ships right to your door in a discreet package. They're made in the USA. And since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, it's cheaper than a pharmacy. And best of all, no more awkwardness. We've got a special deal for our viewers and listeners. Go to bluechew.com. Get your first shipment free when you use our promo code Pacman. That's P-A-K-M-A-N. Pay just five dollars shipping. That's B-L-U-E chew.com promo code Pacman to try it totally free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice. And we thank them for sponsoring the David Pacman show. The David Pacman Show at davidpacman.com. I've been uh, sort of predicting, warning uh, you guys, everybody I've been talking to, that the next two years are going to be particularly insane for two reasons, uh, really three reasons. One, uh, a large part of the country and even many of our elected officials wrongly believe that the president Uh, Joe Biden will be illegitimate, that the election was really won by Donald Trump, but Joe Biden stole it. That radicalizes people. Number two, 
right wing media is going to be crazier than ever. Uh, Fox News now not radical enough, but fear not Newsmax and OAN and some other uh, online uh, platforms and outlets are uh, amping up the crazy and they will be going absolutely no holds barred nuts during the next two years. And number three, we actually have QAnon type conspiracy theorists who have been elected to the House of Representatives. We have absolutely nutty Republicans that if you this this is not praise of like a Mitt Romney Republican, but if you put a Mitt Romney Republican next to some of these people, uh, it's hard to imagine how they're even um, a part of the same party at all. And I have a perfect example for you that blends QAnon craziness with radical right wing media. And it is a story about the new brand new QAnon Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has announced an impeachment of Joe Biden. Now, you might be saying, wait a second, Joe Biden's not even president yet. What impeaching Joe Biden? What are you talking about? Yes. And kooky Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene announced it um, on Newsmax. Where else? It's too crazy for Fox News. So she went on Newsmax and she starts stammering because even she doesn't fully seem to understand why she's going to try to impeach Joe Biden. Take a look. Well, uh, and yes, 10 or so Republicans did this as well. We'll have more on that in a bit. Congresswoman, I understand, though, you have something uh, pressing, something important and something new you'd like to share with everybody. Yes, I, I would like to announce on behalf of the American people, we have to make sure that our leaders are held accountable. We cannot have a president of the United States that is willing to abuse the power of the office of the presidency um, and be easily bought off by foreign governments, uh, foreign Chinese or Chinese energy companies, Ukrainian energy companies. So on January 21st, I will be filing articles of impeachment on Joe Biden. Wow. Articles of impeachment on Joe Biden on his first full day as president. As funny as her idiotic explanation is, uh, the Newsmax host Greg Kelly's reaction when she's sort of like pretending this is huge breaking news, but in reality, she's she's just a, a, a lunatic, radical right winger speaking nonsense. Him having to pretend like this is wow, very, very powerful is part of what makes that clip just unbelievable. Now, she may well be telling the truth that she's going to draft impeachment articles against Joseph R. Biden Jr. on January 21st, 2021, just seven days from today. What's nuts is we've been talking about are Republicans going to impeach Joe Biden just for the hell of it. And apparently at least this one Republican is going to. It will go nowhere because Democrats control the House and Democrats control the Senate. And most importantly, because Joe Biden hasn't done anything worthy of impeachment, of course. And if you needed and this is an early signal that, yes, these people are going to be just as crazy as they were during their pre elected official lives. And yes, right wing media is going to be levels of crazy that we only previously uh, uh, sort of skated by with Fox News. Take the craziest thing that's ever happened on Fox News. That's going to be 24 seven on Newsmax and that's going to be 24 seven on OAN. So there's going to be no shortage of insanity to debunk over the next two years. Um, and, and just a few other. We're going to talk about the metal detectors at the House of Representatives on the bonus show today, so I don't want to say too much about it. But we now have uh, a House of Representatives 
increasingly riddled with outrageous conspiracy theorists and radicals. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the woman in the video we just played, uh, a guy named Madison Cawthorn. They've admitted that they carry firearms. He admitted that he carries firearms with him onto the House floor, multiple firearms. He's in a wheelchair and he says the wheelchair allows him to actually have multiple firearms with him. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, saying she legally has guns. So why shouldn't she be able to have them on the floor of the House of Representatives? And now metal detectors are going in to try to stop that. So these are really scary, outrageous people who are now in the House of Representatives. And there's two ways that this could go. Um, the the optimistic path is that the election of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and others is a blip that remember members of the House are up for reelection every two years. They're constantly the, their campaigns for reelection are going to start in seven or eight months already. The hope would be they did in their particular districts, very Trumpy districts, uh, ride the wave of Trumpism to the House of Representatives and that they'll be gone in two years. That's the optimistic side. The more pessimistic side and the scarier side is that although Donald Trump will be gone, we talked about how his impact will continue through the judges and Supreme Court justices that he's selected. This may also be the legacy of Trump. People like these folks who may remain in the House and there may be this wacky QAnon Trumpian contingent that remains in the House for some time. It's very scary. And we almost immediately I mean, listen, they'll start campaigning in seven months. We'll start dealing with it in seven, eight months as well. Uh, but we're going to have to activate to make sure that these people are just one term members of Congress. And we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. One of the things I've discussed with you guys um, a, a bunch over the last four years and really over the last two months in particular uh, are a lot of these right wingers are a lost cause and they voted for Trump once or twice, whatever, you know, they, they may never understand the error of their ways, but that it's important for us to remember that there were lots of supposed left wingers who back in 2016 maybe stayed home because they didn't think it was important enough. Uh, the difference between Trump and Hillary. And they said, ah, I'm going to stay home if it's these two. I'm kind of kind of opting out. Some leftists said I almost would rather it be Trump if it's not going to be my preferred candidate because Hillary is just a centrist shill and they would be the same. Uh, and of course, we found out that that's very much not the case. We have seen Donald Trump do things that I never imagined any president would do. Never mind Hillary Clinton. Um, I have not been calling for apologies, but I have been saying it would be important to recognize how wrong those leftists were. I did get a call from someone this morning saying uh, I regret not voting for Hillary in 2016. It was wrong of me not to do that. Take a listen. Hey, Dave, I'm holding my baby. So if you hear a little talk, that might be him. But just want to call you and say I was watching the show on the 11th and I am one of the people who did not vote for Hillary in 2016. Right. I voted for Jill and I regret that since then. I voted for Joe this election cycle because of people like you and Destiny who taught me about harm reduction. Wow. And I'm eternally grateful for that. So thank you for teaching me about harm reduction, buddy. That was really, really good for my life and really probably good for the country. <laughs> Thanks anyway, Dave. So that's a beautiful voicemail and it's great to hear things like that. And we also need to recognize that in order to really get more change, we have to deprogram some of the 75 million Trumpists that sure, 
you know, we learned something like what, what was it? Eight percent of Bernie supporters ended up voting for Trump instead of Hillary in 2016. Th these are relatively small numbers. They could have made a difference, by the way, because it was so close in 2016. But we really need to attack the issue of the 75 million people who thought voting for Trump after four years of disaster was was a good idea or at least a better idea than voting for Joe Biden on today's bonus show. Congresswoman Liz Cheney facing major blowback after em embracing the impeachment of Donald Trump in the House. We will talk about the metal detector guns on the House floor fiasco that is plaguing the House of Representatives and ex Michigan Governor Snyder has been criminally charged. Rick Snyder criminally charged in the Flint water crisis. We will talk about the charges he's up against, the possible penalty and what we expect. Flint still has a water problem. Understand how long it's been. Flint still has a water problem. All of those stories and more on today's bonus show. You can get instant access to the bonus show by signing up at joinpacman.com. It's quick, it's easy. You can use the coupon code BETTER21 to get yourself a discount or make a pledge at patreon.com slash David Pacman show. That will also give you access to the bonus show. In either case, I will see you then or otherwise tomorrow. Reminder, we are off Monday for the Martin Luther King Day holiday off Monday, but with you today for the bonus show and tomorrow as well.